I was just finding the link to our first interview and it started playing in the background. So I've paused that. That was three years ago. It was September 2019. So um, a little bit beyond three years ago. And we spoke a little bit about Walt Whitman. I remember that. We spoke about your travels. I think you just gotten back from a trip that had taken you to Kosovo and Kazakhstan. I don't know how how distant those memories are. I had just come back. It was three years ago. I likely had just come back. What might have been actually maybe the very first story from Tripitana, very early. Uh, I had gone over to test film for the Lomography Film Company. I flew to actually Serbia and then spent uh, like a, a week or maybe two weeks actually traveling around sort of the Balkans with a wonderful young woman who I know who uh, worked uh, for Atlas Obscura. And so we just kind of was poking around, went through a lot of little countries over there. Just I was just testing out the film because they were wanted to get opinions from folks who use film stock about what they thought of film stock. And uh, so we just, I had just spending a lot of time in the, in the Balkans eating a lot of uh, small roasted meats. It's a part of the world that I really like crave to spend more time in because it's familiar because I live in Eastern Europe, but it's a little bit more Eastern and different and strange. The the funny thing about it is, is that, you know, living here in the States, Americans never go anywhere near it other than the the adventurous young travel backpacks that kind of. Uh, And it's a shame, actually, because it's sort of uh, this is not the way to put it exactly, but it's it's sort of the last frontier of a Europe that's largely disappeared. I don't know how much you were in. uh, You're also a bit younger than me, but. You know, I, I, I very much grew up around sort of the, the Mediterranean in the 90s. And that world has entirely disappeared because of the EU. But Eastern Europe still has that sort of uh, hold to the, the old traditions, the old economy uh, has been less spoiled by tourism. It's, it's wonderful because of nobody going there, but also it's a shame that nobody goes there. It's that sort of weird dichotomy you always have in contemporary travel. Yeah, and people who come to visit me in Poland are always shocked by how nice it is. And I've been trying, I've been trying to tell you. <laughs> and you had this post with an uh, article rather with us um, published just at the start of the pandemic, which will probably segue us into talking about your latest book, Invited yeah. to Life, Finding Hope After the Holocaust. Because before you started the journeys that would lead you to create that book, you wrote a piece called The Infinite Highway. And it begins with, within the story, there's going to be an explosion on an airplane. That was your, in a sense, introduction to what was then the strange and unfamiliar world of the pandemic that forced all of us travelers to kind of stopped traveling for a while. So the Infinite Highway, I wrote it, I must have written the Infinite Highway not more than a week before I got on the road for Invited to Life, because Invited to Life started, the current iteration of a started as a pandemic project. But at the time when the pandemic started, I, I wrote the Infinite Highway out of sort of the same series of conversations that I was having with myself, because literally, like a lot of folks, the, the world had blown up for me. You know, before the pandemic, my whole life was doing travel assignments for magazines, sometimes for, for national tourism boards and that kind of thing. And, and doing, you know, like maybe like 10 or 15 weddings a year. And that was my economy. Uh, and then all of a sudden nobody was in love anymore and there was no travel. And so the world exploded and I really just kind of sat down into to writing and the infinite highway just started because I was thinking about the world exploding and how fundamentally everything goes wrong and then something beautiful still kind of happens, right? The, that, that was actually probably the single most terrifying moment of my life, the story that's an infinite highway. Literally thought I was going to be a plane crash. And it's also now one of the most beautiful memories. That's, if you're a traveler, you have to be willing to accept that. There's always an element of fear. 
there's always an element of the unexpected in the way that one way leads on to another. And sometimes the plane blows up and sometimes you're sitting there clutching the hand of a, you know, a little Latin American lady who's also scared shitless with you uh, in the sky, hoping you don't fall out of it. And the, those are sort of where these, these connections come. That's, that's, that's sort of what the, the beauty of, of, of travel is. It's sort of, you jump out of an airplane with a parachute and if the parachute opens, you've got a great story and you've got a wonderful memory of a soft landing. And if the parachute doesn't open, you won't remember it and won't be able to tell the story. So it doesn't really matter, right? So it's kind of how it goes. Your Infinite Highway continued because you were able to travel in some ways through throughout the pandemic. How was that process of meeting the people that you traveled to meet? And maybe it would help to start by just describing how that idea uh, took hold. I, I think it began as a project for Village Voice. So yeah, so it started, uh, the, the, what, what is now Invited to Life. It did not have that name until fairly recently. Um, it originally started, I was working at the, the Village Voice, one of the best gigs I ever had in my life. I had uh, been concerned in sort of uh, late 2015. At the time, uh, there was a, a man running for president in the United States who had an agenda that was sort of anti-refugee, anti-Latin American, was talking about all the time, about how the, the Latin America is, is not sending its best people and whatnot. And uh, I was getting very concerned about it just because I, I have an identity as American and, I, and I, I treasure it, actually. It's, it's one of the core contemporary values of American life is the idea that anybody can opt in. That's always been part of the idea of it. And so he, the, he was talking about how you know, America should be welcoming less refugees. And I want to do a story for the Village Voice exploring what refugee experience and contribution in America looks like. And it started as, okay, well, what is a set of, of people, a, a group of people who have been refugees to America, where you can look at them at, I don't want to say the end of their lives, but after they've had full lives and look back and see what that experience is like for them and what they contributed or didn't, uh, where it was easy for them or wasn't. Uh, and the decision came not out of an interest, particularly in the Holocaust, but just because it was the biggest group that kind of came all at once that had been here a long time. The folks who come in from Cuba weren't quite old enough. The folks who had come in sort of after this, the spate of wars that happened in the 80s and 90s throughout the Middle East and Africa definitely weren't old enough. But looking at the, the group of refugees who come out of uh, Europe in the late 40s kind of all at once, these are folks who were in their 70s, 80s, and 90s and can look back on their lives and their experience. The original title for this was Refugee Invited to Life. The title Invited to Life comes from a Yehuda Amakai poem that I happen to like, but it came as an exploration of refugees. Uh, I started working uh, with the Museum of Jewish Heritage here in New York, and they, I asked them, hey, can you find me uh, a dozen Holocaust survivors that I could sort of interview, make some pictures of, do a story for Village, the Village Voice to run in like April. This was in the fall of 2015. And, and they came up with a bunch, and I, I photographed 37. And it had been very, very challenging for me uh, just talking about Holocaust narratives and stuff. It was emotionally tough. In a certain way, I actually became sort of physically tough. I, I uh, really kind of absorbed these stories in a, in a really sort of personal way because of a personal backstory that I'd had myself. And the Village Voice kind of fell apart while I was in their house doing it. It ended up becoming an exhibition with, with the Museum of Jewish Heritage uh, because they stepped in and said, hey, we like these portraits, can we show them? But that was that. I put it on a shelf. And then when the pandemic hit, I started thinking about these infinite highways. And I started thinking about what happens when your whole life falls apart. And I was thinking just absolutely constantly about these survivors, every single one of whom had it far worse than I had. I had had 
my career ruined. I couldn't see my friends. I couldn't see my family. Most of my family was in, in Europe. I was feeling extremely trapped, like everybody else sort of had these really dark emotions going on. And I said, I, I said, you know, I, I kind of want to check in with this. And I want to I want to check in with these survivors, other survivors, and do an exploration of what they've thought about their lives overcoming trauma. And I got on the road at the beginning of the pandemic, as, as you know, but your listeners probably don't, because uh, I sort of immediately, when the world fell apart, started uh, shooting for Getty News. They needed new shooters left and right who weren't afraid to go into the American interior. So I packed my whole life into a little little Hyundai and started going around. And I had actually been talking with a, a publicist who I knew who'd worked for the museum uh, here in New York about it. And she said, you know, you should you should make a, go back and, 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 and sit with them again, sit, sit with more survivors. And so I started reaching out to every Holocaust museum that would uh, talk to me in America, which is quite a few, saying, hey, I'm looking for survivors might sit down with me to talk about overcoming trauma and, gr- and group loss and, and what that looks like in their American experience. And all of the museum said, well, we'll give you a list. You can go talk to them or try to, but nobody's going to meet with you. There's a pandemic on. That's crazy. And so I started reaching out to survivors and almost everybody got back to me immediately. And almost everybody said, of course, I'll meet with you. Nobody was scared of the pandemic. None of them, really none of them. Um, the, there was. The, I heard the same joke again and again. I survived Hitler. This is nothing. And I ended up spending my pandemic shooting for Getty News going around. You know, we had a, a whole flash, hot flash of of craziness in America in 2020 with uh, riots and protests and the election and so on. So I keep busy with that, but also I was going around and meeting Holocaust survivors all over this country. There's not many left, but I met a heck of a lot of them and talking with them, sitting with them about their experiences, what America meant to them, which was certainly a topic at this time, what overcoming trauma and processing it looked like, what their family dynamics looked like, where they were, uh, Obviously, you've seen the book, and so you know the the trick of the book and how they're marketing what it actually is, um, which you know is, is is sort of a strange thing for this topic. Yeah. But um, but talking about you know where their lives turned left and where they found their way back onto the road again, and you know it, it was actually really gratifying and and helpful to me personally. I got a little greedy with it a little bit because it was really helpful for me. My plane had exploded, and I wanted to know how I was going to get it back on the ground, right? And then sitting with these survivors, all of whom their planes exploded and they most of them had all found their way back to the ground and had lived thriving lives here in America and were were they forever changed and, and did they have scars from what happened to them of course they did of course as we all do everyone right now is sort of dealing with this thing we don't talk about where everyone on planet earth right now is a little changed and we all have certain emotional challenges and hurdles uh those scars don't go away but scars do heal and you learn to live with them and you learn to still go forward and that was sort of the big takeaway i had from the survivors so then those first meetings that you had when you'd contacted the museum said giving you an introduction yeah. we how was that experience were you sort of ushered into a living room and and shy and did you have expectations or did you have a list of questions and and how did that go in in contrast to that i had i had wanted to frame it differently uh the big challenge i'd had when i did my first series of portraits uh, now seven years ago was that i talked a lot about the holocaust and i i wanted to frame this differently i wanted to talk about american experience and overcoming trauma and the very first person who i sat down with uh in this new space is the very first person who appears in the book a guy named Werner Reich, who is a, uh, was a magician. He actually just died a few months ago um, uh, here in New York. 
and he had learned to do magic from an older magician at Auschwitz. I came in with it knowing that I wanted to frame it differently. I wanted to frame it as, let's talk about after the war. Let's talk about how you built that for the war. And so I sat down with him and I had planned to have the same first question for every single one of the survivors I interviewed. And that was in fact the very same question for all of them. The first question was always, how did you come to live here in America? I wanted to start the conversations in 1946. I didn't want what happened to them to be the core of the conversation. I wanted to be what happened afterwards. And I sat down with Werner Reich, who was a physically diminutive, very lively guy. And he said, okay, before we start, I want to tell you people want to talk to me about the Holocaust all the time. And I don't know what uh, to tell them. They asked me, how was the, the Holocaust? They say, uh, I went to Auschwitz. It was lousy. I don't know. And so, and that, that's, once he said that, I realized that it was okay to show these survivors in a different way than they always are. When people talk about the Holocaust, they talk about the period between, let's say, 1938 in 1945, they talk about a sort of, um, uh, this is a spicy way to put it, but probably not wrong, sort of a, a fetishized trauma, talking about all the terrible things that happened to them. And those things certainly did. It's very real. Uh, but what people really don't talk about is the personality of the folks who come through it. The fact that they're often uh, incredibly happy because they, they have a certain valuation of the meaning of life. Um, they're often very funny, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, they're there's a sort of a personality set there that nobody ever really explores. And once I sat down with Werner and in the very first five seconds, I realized it's the person who is warm and lovely and uh, a little scared and really happy to be here and complicated and funny and all of those things that I could explore it more than just, well, let's talk about the modern Auschwitz. Yeah, it, it's really interesting because like there is a certain expectation that one has when when one encounters stories of the Holocaust. And that is, you know, if listeners have visited the Auschwitz Memorial or studied this or read about it, there, there's a pattern and yeah. stories are, fit that pattern. And, and it's important to dwell within that. Mm-hmm. This is something else entirely, like the enormity of the lives and characters and personalities and humor. I mean, you've got one guy, um, Saul Dryas, talking about his band called yeah. the Holocaust Survivors Band. And he's kind of making self-deprecating jokes about the name. And it's it's quite different than what you would expect if picking up a book with the word Holocaust in the subtitle. Because I think it's also, it's, it's I, I, I haven't found a way yet to discuss this without sounding like I'm knocking other people of the Holocaust. I'm absolutely not. Everybody talks about, and this is an absolutely necessary conversation, what happened, because it's something that we see recurring constantly in human history, talking about genocides and tragedies and dehumanization, et cetera. And it's incredibly important to talk about that. But people don't really talk about the fact that the Holocaust lasted seven years and also nearly 80 now, but also what happened to these folks, the, the pinpoint of it happened between 1930 and 1945, but there's been 77 years since of life these folks have had with experiences and the way it's affected their relationships, the way it's affected their choices. And you you very often see that um, the fabric of their lives is definitely stitched with thread that is the color of the Holocaust. That's unquestionably true. But also there's other things and there's ways that they grew from it. There's ways that they 
um, their lives were influenced by it. The number of them that became psychologists, Werner who learned magic in Auschwitz became a magician, etc. So there's these these real trends, and I think it's important to view the Holocaust or any sort of group trauma, because there's a Holocaust today, there's a Holocaust tomorrow, there's a lot things happening everywhere. Uh, you you live an uh, inch and a half away from Ukraine right now. You understand this intrinsically. Um, to talk about it not as an event, but as people. And that's what you have done. I mean, the, every person who is introduced, you have the the, the portrait, the, the literal photograph of them, and then you have some encapsulation of their story. And, and they all, they're not the same. I and mean, one beautifully begins with, it's a long way from Poland to the Poland Street Wharf. And, and another talks about, ending up in China. And, and there's one, there's one story that stood out to me, um, Elza Ragusen, who, um, Elsie, Elsie Ragusen, Elsie Ragusen, incredible story. Her wartime story is amazing. Her post-war story is amazing. Everything about her is insane. It's just like pretty much every major event of the 20th century. She seems to have intersected with. Yeah. She's, she's, she's sort of the Forrest Gump of the real world. She's been at all these weird cross sections. Um, for for your your listeners who don't have the book in front of them, the brief summary of Elsie Ragusen's story, and I'm I'm not going to give away because you've seen her story. What sort of the trick of it is, but it's this, the the core of it is this: Elsie Ragusen ended up uh, in a concentration camp because she took a really bad vacation, and it's it's an absolutely wild story uh, that touches on uh, something that that became important to me over the course of doing the the project, which is uh, that survivors don't always look like or sound like or act like or pray like people think they do. They're not all Jewish. Not all the survivors are are Jewish. Uh, majority are, but. Um, Judaism isn't necessarily a very central figure in, in the project. Uh, there's lots of survivors who live for other reasons. There's a, there are two uh, gay LGBT uh, survivors. There's survivors who weren't Jewish at all and for other reasons. Uh, there's a, a real diversity of what this experience looks like. Fundamentally, the way it processed is all very similar for a lot of people. I'm not a psychologist. There's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but you definitely do feel, you know, how how these experiences shape them. And if you meet someone like Elsie Ragusen, who I, I uh, drove many, many hours to go and see at her Florida home, you know, she was a person who, like like a lot of them, she was warm. She was funny as hell. Um, like most survivors, uh, she desperately wanted to feed me. You know, I'd sit with them for hours, all of them. Uh, I came to know quite a lot of them. I came to be friends with quite a few of them. And I'd, I'd get there and, you know, people who spent their whole childhood starving desperately want to feed you. They want to tell you their experience. They want to talk about what that experience is, but also they want to make sure you've got a little better than they did maybe. And it's, everybody wants to feed you and, 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 and sort of share that. I ate more damn cookies <laughs> in the course of <laughs> two years. It's going to take me the rest of my life to shed my cookies. What a wonderful sort of unextended event, like unextended consequence. Be careful when interviewing Holocaust survivors because you'll be overfed delicious cookies in every corner of America. You know, there, I had this, this wild experience. I photographed, I think about her a lot, actually. I photographed a survivor named Pearl Friend, who is quite old. Uh, she must be very nearly 100. Uh, she she was liberated when she was a late teenager or early early adult. Like she's 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 very close to hundred now. Uh, she has an outrageous situation because she uh, I did I, as, as you've seen I I didn't generally feel the need to show everyone's tattoos. I think there's maybe one or two tattoos in the whole book. Um, but she had she had a tattoo on each arm. They got her at one camp and they got her at another camp. And 
I, I sat with her. A lot of her family had shown up for the the interview because they they had heard about what I was doing and, and wanted to see it. And um, I sat with her a long time. It was a weird, sprawling interview because her English wasn't the greatest, so we had to keep jumping back and forth between like three different languages. But she would not meet, let me and my assistant leave until we'd eaten like our weight in cookies. And then once we had done so, she needed to package up cookies for us to take with us. And bear in mind that she's already doing me a favor. She's given me some of her time, which is narrow, which is precious, to sit here and talk about what her life looked like as a person trying to adapt from this traumatic experience in, in America in the middle of a pandemic on a day when probably she had other things she could have been doing. Uh, but no, the important thing is that I, this rando who have shown up at her house, and my assistant is even more rando who's shown up at her house, we, we must absolutely positively have these cookies that she had been spending the morning making, which, by the way, had a little Hershey's in them because Hershey's kisses are very nice, and she wanted us to know that. And it was a whole thing. There's, in addition to the to the stories, which of course form the the core of the book, you had contributions, essays from three uh, very interesting contributors, um, who many of our listeners, very different, who many of our listeners would have heard of: um, Neil Gaiman, uh, Sabrina Orhan, Ora Mark, and Dr. Mayim uh, Bialik, who's also extremely well known and I had not really didn't know her story I, I just knew her as a wonderfully talented comedic actress but I didn't realize that there was so much more there how, how did you choose these contributors and how did those stories so, and perspectives come about I really like having contributors to my books uh I think it's important that it not just be the BA van size show and me just blathering on I like to have other folks uh contribute the funny thing is this is probably a hard thing to believe I don't actually particularly care about celebrity. It just kind of worked out that way. Mary Louise Parker did my first book uh, because she's just as as knowledgeable about uh, poetry. My first book about poets, obviously, uh, as a person you'd ever want to meet. She knows more about contemporary poetry than many poets do. Uh, with this book, I wanted three specific things. I wanted one person to talk about the importance of passing on stories. I wanted one person to talk about sort of the strangeness of uh, specifically the, the, the Jewish and or refugee experience in America. And I wanted one person to actually talk about the Holocaust. Uh, the first words of the book are, this is not a book about the Holocaust, which is true and not true. But uh, I had found out that Mayim Bialik, who became famous, obviously, as a little you know, young, young girl, I guess, um, uh, that her grandparents had been refugees. It's, somebody third-hand had told me it, and I uh, found a way to get a hold of her. I reached out, and she said yes immediately. Uh, I didn't know at the time. She's got a busy life. Literally, while she's writing my essay, she's, um, she's getting... Uh, a new gig uh, working as the host of Jeopardy here in the States uh, and also filming a TV show. She's an incredibly busy woman. And she writes me a lovely essay that was great right out of the can. All we did was put in one comma and went to print. Nothing needed to be changed. Uh, she was the very first one to come on board. Pardon me. The the second person to come on board was Sabrina or Mark, who was actually my guest. She's probably the least well-known of the three of them, uh, but I still fundamentally come from a life of poetry. I write in a poetic way. I like, it's important to me. I, I want to have a poetic voice. And she had written a series of what she calls fractured folk tales, fairly 
one of my last fractured fairy tales for uh, the Paris Review, and I'd, I'd known about them. I asked if she had something that she could talk about that was kind of facing the Holocaust. And she said, yeah, she came up with the essay that, that she provided, which actually has run elsewhere since. It was, it was as far as I know, it was written for this, but it, um, it ran a Paris Review between there and now. That's okay. And it was just this lovely poetic thing. And in a certain way, getting Sabrina's contribution was actually my my get. I really wanted to have somebody who, who would be not me, uh, who would be able to provide sort of this really poetic interlude. Because otherwise, if you have this book, there was a choice made uh, to have all the portraits be in black and white, which was a challenging choice to make. But fundamentally, it's it's 90 portraits in black and white with essays attributed attached to them. It, um, it would get a little monotonous. I wanted to have these outside voices. And so it was really great to have these, these sort of pauses. And they're very intentionally, they're very intentionally placed in the book. And so it was nice to have sort of the, the dessert of the book, the last essay be Sabrina Ormark. Uh, I reached out to Neil Gaiman, who I do not know. We've never spoken. Uh, he knows who I am, obviously, now, and I know who he is. But I reached out to his people and I said, hey, I would really like somebody to provide an essay about uh, the importance of passing on and telling stories, something that Neil Gaiman knows all about. And I had done so only because I knew that he had a sort of a, a, a half-distant uh family connection to the Holocaust. And I thought it was an interesting thing to see what a person who has a connection to the Holocaust, but but not like super directly, not super personally, um, what what they might have to say about it. And he wrote me a, I think it's actually the shortest of the essays, but it's, it's incredibly tight. I think it's 1100 words. Uh, and it's it's all about specifically in his own family. He, he knows his, uh, I believe it's his first cousin once removed who was a camp survivor. And how formative it was to him, her seeking out stories and education in this absolute apocalyptic scenario, how that fed into him and the guidance he had in his own life as a person who's built a life telling stories. I, as a person who's fundamentally a storyteller, thought that was really, really attractive. And he got that immediately, wrote a really, you read it, a beautiful tight essay um, that is sort of a showstopper and is placed really intentionally in, in the book. Uh, to sort of give it this this impetus i wanted folks to read these essays and learn these stories and then get a little get a little pause here hear from someone else who's not me, who doesn't write in the same way as me, who tells stories differently than me, get sort of a refresher. The essays are all placed in a way that they reflect on and introduce the survivors that immediately precede and follow them, who are all really intentionally placed. Especially, uh, you have a book in front of you, unfortunately, mine's my father's house, but uh, Mayim's has the very most intentional placement because um, Mayim gets placed right smack in the middle of the discussion of God. You know, And um, you know, it was it, it felt very important to me to have someone who wasn't just me talking these the bits that you you did write which is the the, the majority of the book they're you, they're described in the book as vignettes they're quite it's hard to pin them down sometimes they're short poems sometimes they're quite narrative descriptions of the person's story often focused in answer to that question how did you come to live in the united states sometimes it's it's you, you focus on their current or recent uh, profession or, or something about their family or the, or the cookies that they've offered you. And I'm thinking and the like, pandemic, a, pandemic and the pandemic. Well, yeah. yeah. And I'm thinking what a daunting thing it is to sit down and attempt to sum up such a huge life in such short form. And you did it 90 times. 
So how how was that? How was that experience I, I, I did for you? One hundred and forty times. There's ninety in the book. I did one hundred and forty of them. Right. Wow. Um, so for for me, what it was was I I sat down with everybody forever. I I thought that was important. I'm not the first person to photograph Holocaust survivors. There's been uh, four that I know of. Uh, the the about the same time as me, a few months after me, a, a photographer named Martin Schuller did a project with the Museum in Jerusalem. But I had a real obligation to sort of sit with folks and 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 talk with them and come to know them a little bit, uh, just because I thought it was important. There, there's a a very bad habit amongst folks who face Holocaust survivors to depict them in a certain way. They're very often depicted as being these sort of pathetic wrinkled victims and i i know 140 of them and they're not i mean they're they're victims to be sure but they're they're more than that and they're more complex and they're incredibly warm and they're funny and they're very easy to love and they're not victims or survivors and i wanted to sit with them what would invariably happen while chatting with them you know you give anybody you interview folks you know this you give anybody long enough and eventually they're going to say the right thing to you they're going to get to what it is and i i had a particular interview technique that i employed that worked very well for, for doing this but eventually every survivor would say something that I'd feel it, I'd hear it, I'd write it down, and I'd know that's that's what the story is. I sat down with a survivor who was in Connecticut, Mr. Berger, who had been saved by uh, a local priest, Poland, and that priest later grew up to become Pope John Paul II. And Mr. Berger said to me, well, you know, I'm here because the Pope did a mitzvah. That's your story. Whatever else it is, it's about storytelling. And whatever else it is, you know that you need to get to telling that part of the story. And everybody had something like that. I had a big challenge in, in the way that survivors tend to tell Holocaust Stories. Survivors tend to have a, uh, a script that they've learned to give over the last 80 years. They have a uh, they have a script they tend to give, which is here's how I talk about the Holocaust. Here's what happened. I can get through it. I can process this uh, mentally, emotionally, etc. And I can give this speech to little kids at a museum or a school. I can talk about my family to my family about the Holocaust in this way. And unfortunately, I coming in and talking about the post-war experience. So survivors tend to have a way of telling uh, Holocaust stories that they've practiced over 80 years, they're giving a talk to a school or at a museum. They have a very specific script that they can deliver to kids or academics or their family. Here's what happened, and it is entirely compartmentalized. And so I kind of intentionally uh, confounded that uh, by starting with 1946. You have a very specific script of here's how I can talk about what happened at Bergen Belsen, or here's what I here's how I can talk about what happened when I was hiding in an attic. And then all of a sudden I start showing up and saying, let's talk about being a refugee. Uh, it's a much more emotional process for them. What ended up happening was I would get uh, survivors talking about issues they were much more emotional about, coming to America uh, after the war, being totally wrecked, and maybe meeting a woman or a man who makes their life come together, or trying to build with great difficulty uh, a future for their children. Most survivors that I ended up talking to at some point, sitting there with that for hours with them, would start talking about how at the beginning they all made wrecks, total wrecks of their lives because they were total wrecks. Takes a long time to kind of move past this and, and, and grow and become a, a more functioning person, which which and that would affect their children's generation as well, because they were growing up with these parents who weren't totally functional because they were trying to process the trauma. But fundamentally, by breaking people out of the bounds of what they were used to talking about and the scripts that they had developed over 80 years to giving, it allowed me to be able to get to those hooks of where the, the truth of the story is.
I'm here because of someone else. I have a weird, very loud band in Florida because of X or Y or Z, because I, because I learned to play an instrument at a, a refugee camp after the war, that kind of thing. So that, that became really integral to it and, and uh, was probably the, the game changer for how I was doing it. And that, that focus on what got people out of the hole rather than on the, the hole itself, that, that focus on yeah. how they went on building the life it results in a, and an unexpected thing, which is a book on arguably the, the greatest trauma in human memory, is actually quite a positive, nice, warm book that I was doing a little, um because I, I have the digital version, I can do a, this thing, a, a bad editor habit I picked up. I like to know how many times words appear. And the word cry oh. appears five times and the word laugh appears 10. The word Hitler appears just once. The word God appears 25. And I, I think that gives a an interesting sense of the of the result. Like it's, it's a positive wait, experience. Wait, now, this is important because you've illuminated something that neither me or my editors had noticed. Whose story does the word Hitler appear in? It appears. Because I really did not want that word in the book. So you've, you've caught me on something here. It appears in Anita Weisbord's story in the sentence, born in Vienna, Anita Nagel Weisbord grew up happily and comfortably until Hitler's armies invaded Austria oh, in 1938. So, so I had, I, there's, there's a, a, a very... Uh, old concept. So the 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 Romans would, uh, if, if somebody fell out of favor in ancient times, they would obliterate someone's name. They'd scratch it off of monuments. They'd remove it from existence. And I know 140 Holocaust survivors. And I didn't want to, didn't want one to name my book. And I, I I missed the one. Oh, and Anita too. She's she's really right near me. That's that's embarrassing. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, so. Yeah, there's realities around that. I had a conversation about seven months ago with a woman named Revital who runs uh, the March of the Living in your neck of the woods in, in Poland, where every year they get Holocaust survivors who are now dwindling. So now their children and grandchildren come and they do essentially a, a large hike uh, from one camp to another uh, at Auschwitz, a sort of a way to raise awareness for remembrance of the Holocaust. And, I got on a call with her because they wanted to use some of my images to raise awareness for the March of the Living. And we we sat down and she asked, how did you get into this? And I told her, you know, I started meeting survivors and she jumped right on something that people who know survivors almost always will comment on, uh, which is that you meet them and they're very easy to fall in love with. They're very easy to fall in love with. Uh, the, the first thing she said was, you met them, you fall in love with them, right? And I'm like, yes, that's exactly what happens. Because there's a happiness and there's a warmth in them. Uh, God appears a bunch for specific reasons. Laughing appears a lot because it's true. They're funny. Part of that's defense mechanisms, part of that's cultural, part of that's intellectualism, but they're funny. The, the warmth of it, these are a group of people who gave me cookies to talk about how they came to thrive after the war. There's a tragedy here. And you can't pretend that there isn't. It's important not to pretend that there isn't. You know, I fully expect this is the first of what I assume is going to be a bunch of interviews. And I assume that over the course of the future, I'm going to get folks who say, well, hey, you've made essentially a book that is fundamentally positive. Are you concerned that you're sugarcoating the Holocaust? And the answer to that is I'm not concerned about it at all because I'm not sugarcoating it. It's one of the worst things that's ever happened. A, a crime and a tragedy so large, I cannot, I literally can't imagine it. I'm not sugarcoating that. I'm putting a highlight on the people who could come overcome such a thing. That's the difference. It's not about undermining the horror of what happened, but highlighting the incredible nature of these folks who could get through it and still laugh 
and cry and make cookies and have lives. I could do nothing. I could do absolutely possibly nothing. You know, I personally had a, a life that when I was when I was a kid, I had sort of this tragic. Sometimes my mother, who died a couple days before my 14th birthday, and it, it defines your life. That's one. That's one person. That's one. Imagine if it's, imagine if you're nine years old and living with strangers in a foreign country because everyone you know has been killed. How do you possibly go forward? How do you possibly live? a life where you can get to laughing with strangers and making cookies. It's unbelievable, Nathan. And so I felt it was important to tell the story that way, which nobody, is it complicated? Yeah, but it's also absolutely true. Yeah, and if there is an answer to that question, how do you go from that to this? That is in your book, Invited to Life. And I think that's quite a good place for us to leave it. Okay. Um, we're speaking at towards the tail end of 2022. The book is out um, from Good Bookstores Everywhere uh, on January 31. Is that correct? So it's, 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 it's going to be January 27 or January 31. The book's been very delayed, uh, mostly because of sort of post, post-pandemic production problems. We've had to move the production center a couple of weeks. I said like I designed, did it. Uh, the publishers <laughs> had to... Um, um, move the production center three times now. Uh, there's been a lot of challenges with, with getting it here. So right now, the book has left uh, you know, its publication or its printing site. Uh, it's expected to get here. It's literally on boats. Uh, in uh, late December, we're, they literally flew a bunch of copies stateside uh, for the New York Jewish Book Festival in, on December 11th. But right now, in my gut, I anticipate that it's going to come out on Holocaust Remembrance Day, which is January 27th of 2023. 